0: please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 6. Our text this morning is verses 5 through 7, but I'd like to begin reading at verse 1 and be reading through verse 11. So hear God's word from Romans chapter 6. You know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, the focus this morning will be on verses 5 through 7. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Here the Apostle Paul says that you as God's people have been united with Christ with the result That you have experienced a death and resurrection like his. Reading that we are experiencing a death and resurrection like his, focusing for a moment on those words, like his, leads us to ponder the nature of Jesus' death and resurrection over against the death and resurrection of others. In general, we notice that not many people have been resurrected from the dead, but of course, many have died. And a casual observance indicates people die in different ways and for different purposes. Some die unnecessarily, like the drunk driver who swerves off the road and hits a tree. Others die for a cause, whether to save the life of a friend or relative, or because they're standing up for their country or religion. Some die of disease. Others die at the hand of a murderer. Some die as martyrs. Others die in accidents. Some die as a direct consequence of sin. Some die in peace, ready to leave this world, while others die before their time as we say it, while others die at a ripe old age. The Apostle Paul believed that Jesus' death and resurrection were uniquely meaningful. And uh, he refers in the verses we are considering this morning to believers being united to Christ in a death and resurrection like his, so that we experience death and resurrection, and not just in some general way, but in a way that bears a semblance, a likeness, a similitude to his. What is implied is that there's something special about the death and resurrection of Christ that has had a profound effect upon our lives as believers. As we search and find the answer to Scripture as to what his death and resurrection were like, we should be pondering that. What were his death and resurrection like? And as we look at Scripture, we should be evaluating if Scripture's teaching lines up with what many, even from within the broad church, consider to be the nature and purpose of our Lord's death and resurrection we stated clearly at the outset that there are many today who, while claiming to know and claiming to understand the Bible, don't really understand the true purpose of Christ's death and resurrection. As for Jesus' death, many agree that his death has meaning, but for many it's only in a sentimental way, similar to how the deaths of martyrs are memorialized. There are those who look up to the death of Christ as an example of someone who was not willing to back down from what he believed, and was in fact willing to die sacrificially out of love for others. Jesus' death is thus considered by many to be an example of someone selflessly dying for the good of mankind. This view of his death naturally corresponds to a particular view of his resurrection. If his death was meant to be an example to us of someone with strong convictions, then his resurrection is all about God's approval of Jesus' example and a vindication of Christ over against his enemies. Or if Jesus was only a man who died at the hands of cruel enemies as these enemies tried to silence him and his message, then his resurrection is essentially the Bible's way of saying that his message will not be silenced. And along these lines, many explain his resurrection in a figurative and a spiritual sense rather than physical. Uh, they argue that what the Bible means by resurrection is that Jesus' loving attitude and his perspective on life did not die with him, but is still carried on in the world through his disciples. As a result, his example of love lives on. These are the views that I've just described, these are the views of what we would call the liberal element of the church today those who don't grasp the real purpose of Christ's death and resurrection, which is, they were all about saving sinners, about saving sinners from the curse of God's law. And to do this, Jesus died a real death under the penalty of our sins and rose bodily from the grave because death no longer had any hold on him. He could be raised from the dead because he had satisfied the justice of God because he had paid the penalty of our sin. See, one of the most obvious problems with the liberal view of Christ as a good man who died and is still dead is that we are left with a man who did things that others have done as well. Liberals present Jesus as a good man, but certainly not a unique man. For others have died as martyrs. Others have died for the good of mankind. For example, in our day, there are those who believe that for the future of mankind, we need to colonize Mars. And it's pretty much understood that the first people that go to Mars will not come back to Earth, that their role will be simply to push the cause forward. And though the initial crew may make it to Mars, the odds are they may not. And if they do, at the very least, they will have traded their relatively comfortable lives on Earth for lives of discomfort. And what I've heard is that a surprising number of people, approximately 500 people, have volunteered to be the first crew to Mars. And what we are highlighting for our purposes now is that there are people willing to sacrifice their lives for the good of mankind. We might even think of, as well, the many American soldiers who have given their lives in war, who, in a selfless way, sacrificed themselves for the good of their fellow citizens. And so we need to ask, is Christ just one of any number of selfless people who have given their lives to benefit others? Well, the truth about Christ's death, which will be fleshed out in a moment, is that there is no death like his. For those united to Christ by faith, his death has uniquely accomplished for us salvation from sin. And then there's Christ's resurrection. You and I as believers have also been united to Christ in a resurrection like his. There are not many other resurrections that have occurred, but there are some. There's, what, hap- there's uh, what happened to Enoch, what we would call a form of resurrection. For in one moment he was taken from earth to heaven in both body and soul. There's Elijah's raising of the widow of Zarephath's son from the dead. Elisha was used of God to raise the Shunammite's son from the dead. There was the incident when the body of a dead man was thrown into Elisha's grave, and when that body touched Elisha's bones, that man came back to life. In the New Testament, we have the resurrections of Jairus' daughter, of the young man at Nain, of Lazarus, of those buried in Jerusalem who came to life at the moment of Jesus' death on the cross. Of course, the resurrection of Jesus, as well as of Tabitha and Eutychus. A fairly short list, but what we need to think about is the unique nature of Jesus' resurrection. That explains how we can be united with Christ and as a result experience a resurrection like his. And so, in sum, we need to think about the nature and purpose of Jesus' death and resurrection, for Paul talks about both of them and says that we as believers have been united with Christ in a death and resurrection like his. And so Paul is telling us that there is something different about Jesus' death and resurrection, something that sets them apart from the norm. And it's this difference that accounts for how they uniquely impact our lives. So I want to have us consider this text under the theme, a unique death and resurrection. And we'll consider uh, this text under the, the three points. First of all, what? where we will be considering what is unique about Jesus' death and resurrection, and what does it mean to be united to Christ in the likeness of his death and resurrection. And our focus will be on his death and resurrection as atoning for sin and as accomplishing our salvation. And then second, the second point will be proof. What is happening in our experience that proves we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection? And third. Uh, The third point is purpose. We see that the purpose of Christ's death and resurrection is not only our justification, but also our sanctification. We begin with what? And what stands out about Jesus' death and resurrection is that they were all about saving us from sin. Jesus' death was an atoning death. His bodily resurrection was proof that he had paid the penalty of sin and accomplished our salvation. Scripture is clear that Jesus came to die on the cross, and he came to die as the way to save sinners. For example, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit." That verse tells us that Jesus died because he was bearing the penalty of our sins, sins that were not his own. It also tells us that the purpose of his death was to bring us to God, which is a way of talking of him bringing us into fellowship with God. 1 John 2.2 states, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That verse highlights that Jesus was dying as our sin substitute, that he was dying as the propitiation for our sins, which means that his death was his way of providing for us a covering, a shield, to shield us from the wrath of God that our sins deserve, according to the strict justice of God's law. Scripture is also clear that the purpose of Jesus' death is to earn righteousness for us. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we were once unrighteous, deserving condemnation, eternal condemnation for our sins, but you and I put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and at that moment we're justified by his blood and saved by him from the wrath of God. And yet Jesus' death means nothing apart from his resurrection. Christ's resurrection assures us that Jesus' death has in fact paid the penalty of our sin and that Jesus has earned eternal life for us. In John 11, verse 25, the context of the verse there is that Lazarus has died and Jesus is explaining to Martha his power over death. And Jesus proclaims, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In 1 Corinthians 15, known as the resurrection chapter, we are told in verses 21 and 22, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The resurrection of Jesus proves that he satisfied the justice of God against our sins and is thus able to give us new life. But we need to think about what is the nature of this new life? Does it consist of new bodies? Well, yes, but new bodies that can be, that, that can be united with a new soul that can live with God in heaven. In other words, to live in heaven with a holy God, we also need new hearts Hearts that have been freed from sin. We need what Christ gives us through his death and resurrection, which is a new self altogether. A new body, yes, but also a new heart, which includes a new mind, new desires, and a new will. We need, to put it this way, we need a total resurrection makeover. In 1 Corinthians 2, 15 verses 56 through 57 says, says the, there the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, yes, the emphasis is on the resurrection of the body at the last day, but we must keep in mind that there's not going to be a resurrection unto a life with God in heaven and a resurrection that is thus all about victory over the grave and all about escaping the sting of death without the atoning death of Jesus Christ freeing us, body and soul, from the sin that would otherwise separate us from God. In other words, we need a new spirit and a new heart as well as a new body. How otherwise would we be able to have fellowship with God in heaven? And over against how I think we usually think of Christ's resurrection as only uh, impacting our bodies, we understand from Romans 6 that our union with Christ in his resurrection involves for us more than our just getting new bodies. The emphasis in Romans 6 is on the new life of holiness that we are able to live as new creatures in Christ. In general, as Paul starts out this chapter, he's facing head-on the question whether our salvation in Christ gives us license to sin. The emphatic answer is that in no way are we to continue in sin under the guise that God's grace in Christ is going to be exalted the more we sin. No, the reason Is that we've died to sin. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him, that is, with Jesus Christ, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's emphasis in Romans 6 is on the new walk that we have as redeemed people. Life in this instance is not the life of the body which has been raised from the grave, but the life of the believer who has been raised from spiritual death and is now able to begin to live a new life of obedience to Christ. And so we begin to see the unique nature of Christ's death and resurrection It is a death and resurrection that is about saving us from sin in every way that sin has permeated our lives. he, He saves us from sin's guilt, from sin's dominion, from slavery to sin, from the punishment of sin. In other words, when we are united to Christ by faith, we experience a death and resurrection like his that has to do with victory over sin. It's not simply that the merits of Christ's death and resurrection are applied to us, but Paul is talking about a death and resurrection that takes place in our lives that is like Jesus' death and resurrection. For example, we might think that being united to a resurrection like Christ means that one day our bodies will be raised from the dead, and that is certainly true. Though that is true the emphasis here in Romans 6 is not that we will share in Christ's resurrection in the sense of our own bodies being resurrected. Paul is talking about a sharing in Christ's resurrection that is happening in the here and now. He is talking about the first resurrection which is mentioned in Revelation 20 verse 5, which is resurrection from spiritual death. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2 verses four through six, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Paul is primarily referring to our being resurrected from the dead spiritually, as Christ gives us a new nature so that we can begin to do that which pleases God. Your resurrection, that is like Christ's, is your being born again. We're talking about spiritual regeneration as resurrection from spiritual death. And the emphasis is here in Romans 6 is on how we've experienced death and resurrection because of our being connected to Christ by faith. The language here of scripture is of being planted together with Christ. The ESV here says united with him, but the language actually comes from the garden where two possible figures come to mind. So some point out that the idea may be that there are two types of seeds and they're planted together and therefore come up together. Their sprouting and growth and harvest occur simultaneously. And so the idea then is that when Christ died and rose again, we at the same time, in our own way, died to sin and rose to new life. That's one way to look at this union with Christ. But Paul may have also had in mind a graft planted into a rootstock. It's a figure similar to the figure that Christ used in John 15 of a branch connected to a vine. The idea is that we were planted together into Christ so that in his death and resurrection as our Savior from sin, a profound change took place with us and in us with respect to sin. The likeness then between Christ's death and resurrection and ours has to do with sin. Just as his death and resurrection were all about dying under sin and rising to victory over sin, our death and resurrection has to do with our dying to sin and rising to a new life. Which brings us to a consideration of what is set forth here in Scripture as the proof of our being united with Christ in the likeness of his death and resurrection. And the proof is stated this way in verses 6 through 8. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And so the apostle is saying that there's something that you know, or at least you should know as a believer. There's a sense in which you died when Christ died. And there's a sense you rose to life when Christ rose from the dead. These are things that you know. And the first thing you know as a sinner raised from spiritual death is that you have been set free from sin. Paul uses language that has to do with when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Your old self was spiritually dead. It was your your spiritually dead self enslaved to sin. Your old self was who you were before you were born again and raised to spiritual life. Paul also refers to the body of sin. An expression for our sinfulness that puts the emphasis upon our natural earthly bodies as being used as instruments of sin. In Romans 7, in the very next chapter, Paul cries out, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he sees his earthly body connected to a sinful heart as a body that is inclined inclined towards sin and making him worthy of death. And all of us should know that in coming to know Christ... We are now different people than we were. Our old self has been crucified with Christ. And this was for the purpose that our bodies under the control of sin might be brought to nothing. Now it's not that our bodies will be brought to nothing, and this is important. The salvation we have in Christ is a salvation of body and soul. One of the glorious results of Christ's resurrection is that though our bodies die and are put in the grave, yet at the Lord's return our bodies will be raised in order that we might live with Christ in heaven with new bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, our resurrected bodies are called spiritual bodies because they're designed for life in the spiritual realm of heaven. Romans 6 Verse 6 doesn't say that our bodies will be brought to nothing, as though our bodies in the grave will disintegrate and be gone forever. That would be a denial of the resurrection of our bodies. But what Paul has in mind is our bodies under the control of, of sin, under the power and dominion of sin and used as instruments of sin. Our bodies as bodies of sin will be brought to nothing. The Greek there means to render inoperative. It means to abolish, to make of no effect or to sever or separate from. And so the idea is that in being united to Christ in his crucifixion, our old self dies in such a way that our old sin nature is abolished. It is made of no effect. It is severed from its influence and control of our bodies. And this is confirmed when the apostle goes on to say, but the purpose of this body of sin being brought to nothing is, is, is so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And you know this is true because when you became regenerated, you no longer loved sin like you did before. Perhaps you wouldn't say you loved sin. It may be more accurate to say that before you knew Christ, you were unconcerned about sin. You, didn't, you, you just did what you felt like doing. You gave no thought to whether or not you were obeying God, whether or not you were glorifying God. Serving God and living in submission to Christ's will were things you didn't think about. But if you were not seeking to glorify God, then everything you did was in the service of sin. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. Plus, when we live out of the body of sin of our old self, we live entirely for ourselves. We make all of our decisions out of what we believe will benefit us, what will bring us happiness. And this is at the center of what dies when Christ's Spirit comes into your hearts. Have you experienced what it is to die to self? There's a humility that takes over your heart where you begin to think more about what will please God rather than yourself. This is, in fact, what is required of all, uh, all of Christ's disciples Jesus calls all sinners to follow him, but he also sets forth the requirement that we find in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. To deny yourself and to take up your cross daily is to die to self. It is to refuse to give your sinful self what it wants. To deny yourself is to say no to your old self that loves sin. And it hurts. And it's painful to die to self because none of us wants to say no to those things that we are programmed by nature to desire. To stop giving our old sinful selves whatever we desire is to go against our natural instincts as we come from Adam. It's like putting a live chicken in front of a hungry dog and expecting it to leave the chicken alone something that we do not do by nature, to say no to ourselves. In the crucifixion of the old self, verse 6, and the description of you as a Christian as one who has died, verse 7, is to be understood as dying to sin. This is confirmed in a number of Bible texts. Notice here, even within Romans chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, To the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Also, have you turn with me to the the book of Galatians, a couple of verses in um, Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. First of all, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If we turn over in Galatians to chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You have died to sin. And then Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So our being raised with Christ, returning now to Romans 6, our being raised with Christ means that we now walk in newness of life. Verse 4, because our old self was crucified with him and we have died, we are set free from sin and set free from death to begin to live lives of righteousness. When a dead sinner experiences the resurrection of Christ, he begins to live a new life. This is a life of self-denial. It is a life of serving Christ and others. It is a life of obedience. And in our last and final point, which we are calling purpose, we come to an additional truth of our text that needs to be understood. And the truth I am now highlighting is that the purpose of our Lord's death and resurrection in relation to us is our perfection. What I mean is that Christ gives us a complete salvation that involves both justification and sanctification. It's common for us as believers to think of our salvation too narrowly. And uh, partly it is understandable that the emphasis would be on our justification, as that is the doctrine that was at the very heart of the doctrinal battles of the Protestant Reformation. And so naturally the church has thought a lot about justification And we have explained it and we have highlighted it, especially over against the many doctrinal errors that have arisen against it, against a a proper understanding of it. But let us not forget that there is more to our salvation than justification. There's also sanctification. Justification is God declaring us to be righteous in his sight through Christ's righteousness imputed to our accounts. Justification includes God's forgiveness of our sins. It is his judicial, once and for all declaration that takes place at the moment we lay hold of Christ by faith, a declaration that we are as without sin in his sight, and yet we still sin. It's because remnants of our old self, that body of sin, have not yet been brought to nothing. But one day we will be sanctified. We will have a completely new life where in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds, we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus has justified us. Praise God, he will also sanctify us. And this truth is brought to our attention really in an unexpected and in a somewhat indirect way there in verse 7, where it says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. The verse literally says in the Greek, for one who has died has been justified from sin. One who has died has been justified from sin. So we have a chapter that here, chapter 6, it's all about sanctification, all about our growing in holiness and in obedience, about the fact that Christ has delivered us from a life of sin, And Paul's concern in in chapter 6 is that we not use our justification as an excuse to ignore the call to live holy lives. He is saying in essence here in chapter 6, how can you live in sin when Christ died so that you would die to sin? How can you live in sin when he has raised you to a new life of holiness? And yet he speaks here of justification in verse 7, for one who has died has been justified from sin. He is saying that there are some things that are past. Christ has accomplished things that are absolutely true in the present that concern our salvation. He has died and he has risen. And as a result, we belong to Christ and we are forgiven of our sins. In principle, we have died to sin. And as justified sinners, we are no longer under the guilt and dominion or condemnation of sin. And yet, Paul says in a future tense, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our old self was in principle crucified with him, past tense, the time of his death and our justification. But this is for the purpose that, our, that, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, later result, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, final result. Our hope is that one day we will be completely dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Which really means our current justification is a sign of the sanctification to come. They occur together. Let's not forget that they occur together. For those who have died to sin, those who are completely sanctified are those who have been justified from sin. On this Resurrection Sunday, You and I are being reminded that salvation is more than justification. As great and as fantastic as justification is, it's more than that. It is about Christ's death and our dying to sin and about his resurrection and our being able to now live new lives of holiness. Amen. Let us pray. Great God and Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ for his death, his atoning death, saving death, as well as his resurrection, having satisfied your justice, having atoned for our sins. Lord, we thank you for how in Christ we are united with him in a death and resurrection like his, and in, in a death to sin in in, in a way that, Involves our justification, but also our sanctification, a dying to our old self, and a resurrection that involves us being raised to a new life, a new life of service, a new life of of obedience, a new life of love for Christ and seeking to obey him. Father, we look forward to that day when we will be raised, body and soul, when we will be with you in that perfect and complete state of salvation, completely in every way set, set free from sin, where we'll be dead to sin, and alive to God, life to you in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you that Christ has made this not only a possibility, but a reality. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.